Charles Spurgeon, the cigar-smoking Baptist preacher, said that Psalm 131 was one of the shortest psalms to read, but the longest to learn. He also said this, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before going to bed tonight. Now, the context in which he said that was very, very interesting. And I'll put it in the newsletter this week, so that's just a tease. So check out the newsletter. It's fascinating. Uh, I love Spurgeon because he was a little rough around the edges like Martin Luther. So I'll tell you that story in the newsletter this week. But Spurgeon said that Psalm 131 was one of the shortest psalms to read, but the longest to learn. And if you're familiar with it, how true. You can read this psalm in about 10 seconds, but it will take you your whole life to learn it. And by the time we get through this sermon, I think you'll agree with me. Psalm 131 is not the shortest of the psalms. Psalm 117 is. But Psalm 131 is pretty short, and it does take a long time to learn, like the rest of your life. Psalm 131 shows us that we all struggle with fear and worry and anxiety and panic at times in our lives. We all do to some degree. And some of us really struggle with anxiety and panic attacks. So I know there is not an easy answer to all of these issues. Some people struggle with severe cases of anxiety and severe cases of panic attacks that are just debilitating to them. I had a pastor friend call me this week and tell me that he suffered this massive panic attack that sent him to the hospital. And in that moment, in one sense, it would not have mattered if you quoted Psalm 131 to him because he was out of it. There were some parts of that experience. He says, I don't even remember it. Now, of course, we want to share scripture with God's people. It's God's word for crying out loud. But sometimes... It isn't as simple as just quoting a scripture to someone. It may, in addition, perhaps require medicine. Now, I don't want to get into a debate on the validity of using medicine to help, so please don't email me, okay? But I will say this. My friend said it's helping him. But whatever our beliefs are on that topic, we have to be pastoral and caring as we help people with deep anxiety and fear and panic. You cannot just shout a Bible verse at them. Please don't do that. That's not what they need. They don't need to be shouted out. They need to be prayed for. They need their hand held. They need to be comforted. Yes, share God's promises with them. Please share God's word with them. But don't shout it at them and don't tell them, just get over your fears. That's awful. Please don't do that. Imagine doing that with your children who are scared of the dark or the supposed monsters under their bed. Imagine just yelling at your children, get over it. Monsters aren't real. There's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus is with you. Good night. That's not what scared children need. They need your presence. They need comforting words. They need God's word to be assured that Jesus is with them. What they don't need is law in that moment. They don't need someone yelling at them and telling them to just believe it and get over it. 
And if you've never dealt with deep-seated anxiety and fear and even depression falls into this category, that the kind that just cripples you and you cannot move, then you may not be the person to help them if you were going to shout scripture at them and just tell them to get better. It's not that simple. So I just wanted to say at the beginning of this sermon that there are extreme cases of anxiety and panic and fear that don't have simple answers. Those probably require more. Do they need God's word? Yes, absolutely. It's God's word. It's the words of Jesus. But perhaps in addition to God's word, maybe medicine. Perhaps. I mean, I was reading First Timothy Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And then a few verses later, he says, don't just drink water. Have wine, too, to help with your stomach and your frequent ailments. God's not afraid to use means. So some of those severe cases, maybe, perhaps, please don't email me, maybe, perhaps, require more. We'll just leave it at that. But for the -the run-of-the-mill worries and fears that we all experience... I think Psalm 131 will suffice. That's what Psalm 131 is addressing. But whatever our struggles, we all have to fight and to work hard in order to rest. Yes, we have to work hard in order to rest in God's promises, in order to rest in the gospel. We have to fight the good fight of faith so that we can get our hearts to a place of rest. And so today we're going to bring the gospel to bear on these very normal experiences that we all face. All of us at some time will be plagued with fear and worry and anxiety and panic. In fact, you don't live too long as a human being before you deal with this because children get scared all of the time. All of us were scared as children. And if you disagree, well, there are a lot of Bible passages that deal with lying. Bob Goff says, God is never as nervous about our future or as concerned about our past as we are. And last week we saw this in Psalm 130. In Psalm 130, we saw that God is not as concerned about our past as we are. And today in Psalm 131, we'll see that God is never as nervous about our future as we are. In fact, he's not nervous about our future. And here's the reason why. Jesus, his son, Jesus takes care of our past, and he is taking care of our future. So the gospel that we saw last week in Psalm 130 is the key to living life in Psalm 131, because this is where we all are, probably on a daily basis, if we'll admit it. The gospel that we saw in Psalm 130 is what we need in our day-to-day life captured in Psalm 131. In Psalm 130, we rest in our forgiveness. In Psalm 131, we rest in our Father in heaven. In Psalm 130, we wait for Jesus to make all things new because we're tired of sinning. And in Psalm 131, we wait for Jesus to work in all things for our good. In Psalm 130, we trust Jesus for our salvation. In Psalm 131, we trust Jesus with our situations. And this is what David will remind us of in Psalm 131. Sometimes you have to tell your heart, shh, rest. That's what we do with fussy children, right? 
That's what we do with scared children. We hold them and we tell them, shh, shh, it's going to be okay. Be quiet, rest. My wife just did it with one of our kids yesterday on the couch. Fussy, crying, she scooped her up, held her and said, shh, 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 rest, quiet. It's what we do. And that's what Jesus does for us in the gospel. And that's what we have to do to our hearts. Look at verse 1. Oh, and hear the word of the Lord. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, notice how David begins. First, be shocked because you're like, that's not me that often. Because I, in fact, do occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me all the time. But notice how David begins. The first words out of his mouth are, O Yahweh, O Lord. And what David is doing here at the beginning of this song is giving us a tutorial in humility. David is teaching us here about humility. Those two words, O Lord, are the beginning place of humility. Humility begins with those two words. Humility doesn't begin with the letter H, Humility begins with O, O Lord. Humility begins with Jesus. In fact, in the Hebrew, there is no word O at the beginning of verse 1 like there is in most English translations. In Hebrew, the first word is Yahweh. The Hebrew reads Yahweh or Lord, not lifted up my heart. Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up. So the beginning place of humility is Jesus. It's crying out to Jesus. So let me ask you, do you want more humility in your life? Do you want to learn how to humble yourself? Well, if you can pronounce Jesus, then you're well on your way. David is telling us that humility begins with those two words, O Lord. But David also tells us something about himself here in verse 1. He says that his heart is not lifted up and his eyes are not raised too high. These are two common Hebrew phrases for pride, the opposite of the humility that David expressed at the beginning of this song. In the Old Testament, to have one's heart lifted up is an expression of pride. To have one's eyes raised means that that person is haughty. So David is acknowledging that in this moment, in Psalm 131, he is not prideful. But what does this kind of pride look like? What does it look like to be prideful and superior? Now, the answer may surprise you. The answer may hit a little closer to home than any of us want it to. The answer is this. Pride reveals itself in our hearts when we worry and stress, and panic. Ouch. Let me say that again, because it probably knocked the wind out of some of y'all. Pride reveals itself in our hearts when we worry, and stress, and panic. Now, that's probably not how most of us think of pride. We tend to think of the negative kind of pride, because there's a positive kind of pride, like you have pride in your children's accomplishments. But here the psalmist is talking about negative pride. We tend to think of pride in negative terms like someone being prideful, someone being full of themselves, someone looking down on others, and that is pride. But here in Psalm 131, David is telling us that pride also dresses up in outfits that we are far more familiar with. Worry? Stress, panic, those are the dresses that pride likes to wear. Worry, stress, 
panic, fear. So pride, at its core, is antitrust. Pride expresses itself in worrying about the future. Pride expresses itself in panicking about a situation. Pride expresses itself in stressing about things in our lives. Pride is antitrust. Ouch. That just hits too close to home for me. I was so convicted as I worked on this sermon this week because I don't tend to think of myself as a prideful person. Some dude named David came along this week and totally exposed me. I've been outed as a prideful person because of Psalm 131. I've been outed as a prideful person because I do worry about the future. I do panic about situations. I do stress about things. You know, I was going to put this in the sermon and I I ran out of time and room and I forgot. But I just remembered Jerry Bridges who took Jack Miller's phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. I mean, he's famous for that. Preach the gospel to yourself. Did you know that he struggled with anxiety? When he would travel, he had this anxiety that he would miss his flight, he'd miss his connections everywhere. He went, this guy who's known for saying, preach the gospel to yourself, struggled with severe anxiety. Isn't that comforting? I struggle with it too. I'm always worried about the future. What's going to happen? Car going to break down? This can happen with the kids? I mean, I live in the future. So I struggle with this. So I was exposed this week, very uncomfortably, reading Psalm 131. Because I'm a prideful person, according to David. And I'm going to go out on a far, far limb here and make the assumption that y'all do too. I'm going to assume that y'all struggle with worry and fear too. You sinners... You prideful people, you. I'm so glad I'm not alone. It's nice to see that we're all in the same boat because I know all of us worry and stress and panic about things, but we don't want to stay in the boat, do we? And here's why, because pride is sin. And that's why we don't want to stay in the boat, even though we're together. We want to get our hearts to the place where David is in this song. Now, why? Because pride is sin and God hates pride. Proverbs 6 tells us that pride is one of the seven things that God hates. Now, God hates a lot of sin. God hates all sins. But there are seven that are on his list. There's something about making the top list of seven things that God hates. And pride not only makes the top seven list, pride comes in at number one. God hates haughty eyes, Proverbs 6 tells us. The same Hebrew phrase used in Proverbs 6, 17 for haughty eyes is used here in Psalm 131. Pride, haughty eyes, has been at the top of the charts since Satan rebelled in heaven. Pride has stayed in the number one spot for a long time. So why does God hate pride so much? I think C.J. Mahaney says it best. He said, pride not only appears to be the earliest sin, but it is at the core of all sin. Pride, John Stott writes, is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Indeed, from God's perspective, pride seems to be the most serious sin. From my study, I'm convinced there's nothing God hates more than this. Why does God hate pride so passionately? Here's why. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. 
Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. Ouch! Do you know why God hates pride and grace? Because pride says, I challenge you, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord of the universe, I challenge you to do battle with me. Let's put on the gloves. Let's get, get in the ring. And then let's get ready to rumble. Because I can do a better job than you. I know what's best for me, God. Now, we might not think of it that way. But that's what we are essentially saying when we try to put ourselves in the place of God. So God hates pride, but the good news of the gospel is that he is drawn to the humble. Grace is drawn to humility. Now, that's good news. Do you want to experience God's grace? Then humble yourself. Do you need God's grace? Then humble yourself because God is drawn to humility. He resists the proud. But like a magnet, Jesus is drawn to humility. Jesus cannot resist humility. Jesus cannot stay away from a bended knee. Jesus cannot and Jesus will not resist any person who simply says, Oh Lord. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is drawn to humility because the humble person recognizes that they are under the mighty hand of Almighty God. Grace is drawn to the humble person because the humble person trusts and rests in God's sovereignty. The truly humble person trusts that God knows what he is doing and therefore they rest in that. So humility says... I don't know what's happening in my life, God. I don't know why things are the way they are. I honestly don't know why you are doing what you are doing, Lord. But I trust you. I rest in your sovereign care. And that's what David is getting at when he says this in verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now the Hebrew literally reads, I do not walk in great things, in things too marvelous for me. The Hebrew word halak means to walk, to behave, to act a certain way. It's the same word used in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So the idea here is that David is not perpetually living in a state of worry and doubt and fear. He's not characterized by panic and stress. He doesn't walk in these things continually. In other words, David is saying, I'm not going to walk around stressed out and panicking and spend my energy trying to figure out what God is up to. He's not preoccupied with this. He's not trying to solve the riddle of God's providential direction of his life. He's just resting in the truth that Jesus has got it all under control. Now, keep in mind, this is David in Psalm 131 at this point in his life on this day. This is how David feels as he's on this songwriter's retreat when he composed this psalm. At this moment in his life... It is well with his soul. But that could change. And I'm sure it did. David didn't reach this place of soul rest and never struggle with worry again. I'm sure he struggled with worry and fear after writing this psalm. Just read his other psalms. David is all over the place in the psalms, isn't he? He's a basket case at times, then he's completely stress-free at other times. Mostly, though, David's a basket case, and that's why we like the Psalms, and that's why we relate to David, because David is just like us. We're just a basket case, aren't we? 
One minute, David is full of gospel hope. The next minute, he is full of fear and worry. So please don't misunderstand what David is saying here. He's not saying that there's some kind of higher life where you can reach this plateau of trust and peace and never struggle again. Don't believe that baloney. You may for a season have rock-solid peace and trust, but because you are a sinner and you live in a fallen world, that will not last You will have to fight to get your soul at this place of rest that David is describing here. That's just plain old Christianity right there. We have to fight the good fight of faith. And that's what David has done at this moment in his life. David would tell you today, sometimes you have to tell your heart, shh, rest. That's what David has done in this psalm. He's not occupying himself with things too marvelous for his pea-sized brain. Now, the Hebrew word translated as marvelous is used regularly throughout the Old Testament to describe how Yahweh does these wonderful, amazing, extraordinary, surpassing, incomprehensible things. It's used in Psalm 139 to describe all of the incredible things that Yahweh does. And notice how David even starts this psalm. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's exactly what David's saying in Psalm 131. David isn't sitting around trying to figure out what God is up to. He's not stressing about what is happening in his life, in his family, in his church, in his workplace, in his neighborhood. He's resting in the gospel, trusting that Yahweh is working all things out for his good. And I think if David could re-release this song, re-release Psalm 131, I think he'd probably add a new verse right before the guitar solo that goes like this. And we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Understand, Grace, at all times in your life, God is weaving his patterns in the story of your life, working for your good and his glory. Now, I know we all know that, right? We all know that Romans 8 tells us that. We know it, right? We do. God's working for my good and working for his glory. But how often do we forget it? All the time. We don't have to be consumed with things too great for us. We don't have to occupy our minds with things too marvelous for us. All we have to do is remember something that we already know, but we forget too much. That God is working for your good and his glory, no matter what's happening in your life. And everything that happens in your life, that statement is true. You can bank on that. Forget trying to figure out what God is up to. Forget trying to comprehend things that you can't comprehend. And just rest in the truth that know that God is working for your good and his glory. That no matter what happens, God is working for your good and his glory. No matter what is happening in your life right now, God is working for your good and his glory. Right now he's working. You're sitting in church. What's he doing? He's busy working for your good and his glory. You forgot about that, didn't you? Already. 
Now, I want you right now to think of something that is stressing you out or keeping you up at night, okay? Whatever it is, whatever, identify it right now. Something, some situation that you're involved in right now or that you're dreading, some relational problem, something that has just got you worked up right now. Everybody think of something. You have to have one, if not 12. Identify it. Okay, do you have something? Everybody got a situation or a problem or a relationship, something that's stressing you out. Okay, now think about it. And, and sorry to bring it up in the middle of church. You, you forgot about it for 35 minutes, and here I am making you think about it. Think about it. Everybody got it? Now, when you leave today, and you begin to stress over that, and you begin to lose sleep, and you begin to toss and turn in bed over it, and you begin to lose your appetite, and you cannot eat, I want you to repeat these words over and over and over again until you have calmed and quieted your soul. I want you to say, God is working this out for my good and his glory. When the stress and anxiety and panic and worry monsters come your way, say those words 50 times if you have to, over and over and over again. And then if you want to get extra gospel hope and get extra gospel peace, emphasize different words in that sentence. It's amazing. How encouraging it is. God is working this out for my good and my glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. God is working this out for my good and his glory. If that doesn't get your heart to a peaceful state, rinse and repeat. And if it still doesn't work, you can get your money back. So there's no need then to worry about things. There's no need to be anxious, even though we all struggle like this at some point. There's really no need to worry because David told us in verse 1 that worry is just a form of pride, right? Worry is a form of pride. Ouch still stings because we all worry don't we it's just pride refusal to trust jesus is pride refusal to trust is pride and that is a hard pill for us to swallow so worry is me acting like i am god worry is me acting like i could do things better than god in my way in my time and that's why we need humility because grace because god is drawn to the humble when you put your worry to death by the power of god spirit of god the word of god and you trust and rest in god's sovereignty guess what you get god You get Jesus. Jesus is drawn to humble people. Jesus is drawn to repentant people. Isn't that amazing? 
Jack Miller said, he's the guy who came up with the phrase, uh, preach the gospel to yourself. Jack Miller said this in a letter to a missionary who was struggling with an illness. He said, may God grant you grace to deepen your repentance. Is that what I need when I'm struggling and hurting? More repentance? That's what Jack Miller says. May God grant you, your, grant you grace to deepen your repentance. Pray that he will do the same for me. For repentance is just humility. And humility stands in the low place, not on the mountains of pride. Therefore, humility gets much grace because grace runs downhill. Humility brings God close. Repentance brings Jesus close. The hope of the gospel is that as we humble ourselves, Jesus draws near to us. We don't need answers to our questions. We need Jesus. What we need most when our minds are preoccupied with things too marvelous for us, what we need in that moment most of all is not answers. We need Jesus, the guy with the answers. We want to know what in the world God is up to when what we really need to know is God more. Knowing God will help us as we wonder what's going on in our world. Are you stressed about the country right now? Here's your answer. Know Jesus. You stressed about what's happening in our country? Your answer is know Jesus more. Confused about a situation that you're in? The answer is get to know God more. Whatever it is that has occupied your mind, the answer is always being satisfied with Jesus. Whatever it is that is renting space in your brain, the only way to kick those tenants out is to know Jesus more, to spend time with Jesus more. In prayer, in Bible intake, hearing Jesus' words, you've got to have that. In community, in service, outreach. But all of that requires humility. It requires a bended knee. So this call to trust Jesus is a call to humility. The call to trust, it's a call to trust and hope in the Lord. But it's a call to humility. And humility grows in a heart that is centered on Jesus. That's where humility grows, in a heart that is centered on Jesus. That's the environment where humility thrives, where humility grows. It's a heart that is centered on the gospel, a heart that is centered on the finished work of Christ, a heart that is centered on Jesus' life and death and resurrection and what he has already done for sinners like us. It's a heart that's just simply centered on Jesus. And so the gospel then is actually a powerful assault on our pride. The gospel is good news, but part of that good news is that it is a powerful assault on our pride. Milton Vincent says this, preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. So what does the atmosphere of the gospel look like? David tells us in verse 2, which we haven't even got to yet, and we're 30 minutes into this sermon. We haven't got to verse 2 yet. That's the problem with preachers. You just give them a verse and they, just, they won't stop. The atmosphere of the gospel looks like this. It looks like a weaned child 
who no longer wants to nurse at his mother's breast. The atmosphere of the gospel is no fussing and no fidgeting, but resting. Look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, David employs a very common picture here to explain the atmosphere of the gospel, to explain the state of his heart, a picture that everyone in ancient Israel could and would understand. David knew that by using the picture of a weaned child, that everyone would know exactly what he was talking about. And here's why. In the ancient Near East, children were breastfed until they were at least three years old and sometimes longer. So David knows that everyone hearing this psalm would know what it was like to wean a three- or four-year-old child. I mean, it's one thing to wean a one-year-old. It's a completely different experience trying to wean a three-year-old who, though he is three, still has a bad case of the terrible twos. And really, all you parents know that the terrible twos don't stop at age two, right? They just change their name to the thrashing threes, right? So what's it like to breastfeed until a child is three? It's great until it comes time to wean them. If you have ever tried to wean a fussy three-year-old, then you've probably had conversations about vasectomies. Weaning, some of y'all will get that in a minute. Weaning a three-year-old, weaning a three-year-old is tough stuff. Weaning a three-year-old is hard because Their tantrums and their fussiness are on steroids. If they want to nurse and you say no, then expect that little human being to just collapse on the ground and kick and scream and cry. If you are trying to wean a three-year-old and you tell them no, it's like gravity is on steroids because their little bodies just literally give out. And on the floor they go, a kicking and a screaming. So David knows that everyone who hears this song will know exactly what he's talking about when he says that he has calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child. He means that he does not get fussy and irritable when things don't go his way. He does not get fussy and irritable when things don't go his way. Remember that thing I had you think about? Let me read that sentence again and think about that thing I told you to think about. He means that he does not get fussy and irritable when things don't go his way. He means that he's not restless and fidgety like a child. And that's because David figured out that humility begins with two words. Oh, Lord. Oh, Yahweh. Oh, Jesus. David figured out that humility keeps you from becoming a functioning atheist. But David also knew that when we forget that we are children and that God is our father, then we act like three-year-olds who have no idea what they're doing and what is best for them. We become anxious and we want to be like God. 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 Does that remind you of any passage in the Bible? Does that sound familiar? Well, let me help you. It involves a talking snake who asks a lot of questions. When we become anxious, we just hop back in a time machine and we land in the Garden of Eden and we fall prey to that talking snake's lies and his interrogations and we assume that we can be like God. When we become anxious, we try to be God 
But we lack the wisdom and we lack the power and we lack the ability and the knowledge to pull it off. When we become anxious and worry and are consumed with things too great and wonderful for us, it is then that we assume this pseudo-godlike stance where we think that we can handle what's happening in our lives. And it's only as we remember that we really are just little children. It's only then that we will regain our sanity. It's only as we remember that we are weak and needy and desperate for Jesus that we will be able to calm and quiet our souls. You know, it's not a bad place to be. We don't want to admit that we're weak and frail and empty and desperate for Jesus, right? Because, no, I can do this. We just, we don't want to admit it. But that's where freedom is found. When you can say, Jesus, I got nothing. You're, you're it. I got nothing. That's where freedom comes. That's where joy comes. That's where peace comes. When you just collapse, the place we don't ever want to go is to collapse and say, I'm weak, I'm empty, I can't do this. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to cry out for help. But when you can just drop to your knees and just say, I can't do it. I can't go on. Jesus, you're all I have. That's when the peace floods in. That's when the rest floods in. That's when the joy comes, when we can go to that place that none of us ever want to go to. What did Jesus say in Luke 12, 32? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, those four words don't seem like they go together, do they? Fear not and little flock seem like they don't go together. They seem like they don't belong in the same sentence. Now, the words fear and little flock seem like they go together. That's a marriage made in heaven. Little flock, little sheep, scared to death of all the wolves, right? So fear and little flock seem like they go to, together. But not when Jesus is talking. Little flocks get scared. Little kids, little children get scared. But when Jesus says it, it makes perfect sense. Jesus is the reason why little flocks don't have to be afraid. Jesus is the reason why scared little sheep, scared little children like us, will actually get the kingdom. Because it's all riding on him and not us. And so at this point in his life, in Psalm 131, David has actually calmed and quieted his soul. He's not like a fussy child on its mother's lap wanting to nurse. He's calm He's quiet. He's not fussy. There's no temper tantrums, no fidgeting. He's not trying to figure everything out in his life. He's just resting. He's just trusting. And now he's at a place where instead of trying to put all of the pieces together in his life, he can trust and rest in the fact that God will do what he is going to do in his wisdom and in his timing. David can now begin to see with clear eyes how God might be working things out. Paul Miller said, When you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave his patterns in the story of your life. Instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realize you are inside God's drama. And as you wait, you begin to see him work and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. You are learning to trust again. How do you calm and quiet your soul like a weaned child? Rehearse the gospel. Remember God's promises. Realize that you are not God. Resist the devil. Reach out to Jesus for help. Repent of sin. 
and recall our big idea. Sometimes you have to tell your heart, shh, rest. It's going to be okay. And sometimes you realize that you're in, at the end of a long sermon, one of the shorter psalms in the Bible, and you still haven't got to verse 3 yet. So I'm going to tell myself right now, shh, read verse 3. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now why does David call on the church here to have hope? Because he knows from experience that it's easy to lose hope. This heart state that David is in in this psalm will not last forever. We are sinners. We will sin. We will fail to stay in the state of being at rest and calmed and quieted. So we have to fight. We have to hope. It's that rugged hope that we talked about last week. We're called to wait with hope while we watch God weave his story. But our hope is a rugged hope. As I said last week, biblical hope is not a pansy. Biblical, Christ-centered hope is rugged. It endures hardships. It endures accusations. Biblical, Christ-centered hope is rough around the edges. Biblical, Christ-centered hope fights when it can't feel. Biblical, Christ-centered hope does not rely on feelings, but faith in God's word, which is what we need when we stress and when we worry. So how do you spell hope? J-E-S-U-S. Hope is found in what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Listen, if you can trust him for your salvation, you can trust him for whatever temporary situation you find yourself in. How do you fight functional atheism? Jesus. How do you get humility? By just saying, give me Jesus. So let's close with John Calvin's life motto, and may it become our prayer today. My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's not a bad way to end a sermon, if you ask me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We just want Jesus. We just need Jesus. Just give us Jesus. We offer our hearts to you right now, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. And as we see the beauty of your Son in the gospel, may the Spirit of God Calm and rest our hearts so that we would have hope. And when we drift into the place of being scared and worrying and stressing and tossing and turning in bed and biting our fingernails, Father, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to just tell our hearts, shh, rest. Jesus has got this. So we offer our hearts to you this morning promptly and sincerely. In Jesus' name, amen.